Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie and Kent. I'm joined by the writer Tim McIntosh Smith, whose most recent book, Arabs, is a 3,000-year history of peoples, tribes, and empires. It follows a series of books, Yemen, Travels in Dictionary Land, a book I'd read before my first trip to the country. He's also written a trilogy on the 14th century traveller Ibn Battuta, who in his words may well be the most widely travelled human before the age of steam. Tim's also completed translations and a work of fiction, Bloodstone, set in the year 1368, as the Alhambra in Granada was being completed. All that. Tim, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed you've heard of Bloodstone. It sort of, um, it kind of sank like a, well, it sank like a bloodstone in the publishing world, yes. Yeah, when you said uh, Arabs is my latest book, I kind of went, oh, is it? Because um, I've had something out since, but it was a, it was a translation called, um, it came out under the title A Physician on the Nile. And it's a, it's a description from about 1200 AD of Egypt by um, an amazing guy called uh, Abdul Latif al-Baghdadi, who um, wrote a description of Egypt for the, the caliph. Um, so that is actually my most recent. I'm not picking you up because it wasn't. it's not my book, it's, it's his book. Translators are very important in books getting out there, so thank you for reminding me. Yeah, and as you say, there are other translations that, that I'm... I'm quite proud of in, yeah. in my own way. Of course you are. It's a huge amount of energy required. Um, Tim, to start, for decades, your home has been Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. And last week, though, you were in Labuan, now Kuala Lumpur, next week, Oman. I'm going to borrow a line from your book and ask you if you yourself are a rootless, full-blown tumbleweed nomad. Um, I, I don't, no, I don't think I am. I, I'm sort of more like a sort of... Um, I don't know, one of those sort of mosses that grows in the crevice and, and, and you know, gets deeply into the crevice. And my crevice is, is um, as you rightly say, Sana'a, um, the, the capital of Yemen, um, where I've lived um, for, well, getting on for 40 years. It's, it's incredible. It makes me sound ancient, but I did go there when I was quite young. Um, and even though I'm not there at the moment, I'm, I am being, yes, tumbleweed, a, a sort of nomad at the moment. I, 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 I still regard myself as being based there. And the important thing is that my library is there. So I think, you know, they say home is where the heart is. Um, I say home is where the books are. Oh, yeah, my heart is in Sana'a as well, so um, it, I'm kind of doubly attached. I like that. Um, can you describe your library? Yeah, it's... Um, you, you get to the cattle market, the old cattle market in the old city of Sana'a, which does have the occasional um, sort of lumbering form, lumbering through it, and between there and the donkey market which is still operating, uh, there's a very, very small alley, which is called Shara Jahbal. Um, and it means something like, I usually think of it as bragging alley. 
and I think people used to sort of drag loads up it for some reason. It's it's on an incline, and um, it's actually formed of the. Uh, it's part of the ruined mound of, of the ancient Sabaean city. You know, back to the Queen of Sheba that business. Um, so it's right in the heart of, of ancient Sana'a, and um, and my house is a sort of little Sana'ani tower house that sits on top of this. And you go in, and there's this tiny door uh, that I have to sort of stoop through to get off the street. It's like Alice in Wonderland. And then up and up and up and up and up a, a winding, dark staircase, very, very narrow, with rooms leading off it. And my library is in what used to be the kitchen. It's the old kitchen of the house. So it doesn't have any windows. Um, Yemeni kitchens traditionally didn't have windows, so I, I suppose so ladies wouldn't, wouldn't be seen while they were up there cooking. But it has like sort of holes, arrow slits, um, to let the cooking smoke out. And these have uh, alabaster paints, little alabaster paints put into these. Um, and in fact, all the windows of my house um, are, are, are made of alabaster. So uh, gives this amazing translucent light. Um, and the library, it's just entirely bookshelves, including above the door. Um, and, um, and it's entirely filled with books. I don't know how many, I've never counted them, but um, it's, it's this sort of little room, uh, which is, it, it's almost small enough to sit in the middle and reach out to all the lower shelves. Obviously, you've got to stand up and climb on things to get to the top shelves. But um, it, it, it really is a, it's, it's a special place. And it's where, when we've had missiles falling, which we've had, unfortunately, an awful lot in Sanaa, um, I would actually, when, when the worst of the missiles were falling, were falling I, would, I would take refuge in my library because it doesn't have glass windows in it um, and, and just sit there surrounded by books <laughs> and feel the house shaking and, and also the books are now piled up on the floor so in, in fact there's, there isn't really anywhere to sit there's a kind of little tiny island where I can just about squat on the floor in the middle but otherwise everything is books I, I, I might end up like um, who was it I can't remember but there, there was a uh, a famous um, uh, writer of Arabic. Was he a poet? Oh, gosh, it slips my mind. But anyway, he was killed by his library. Uh, so the story goes, it sort of collapsed on top of him. <laughs> and he was you found like so, a likely candidate for that, Tim. I yeah, it, it's, it, it's, that kind of, um, it's that kind of place. That, that tumbleween line was yours, describing the extreme end of the spectrum of the wandering Arab, the Badawa. They can be less full-blown wanderers, of course, more part-time pastoralists or transhuman herders, semi-monadic and so on. And then in contrast to them, you define and explore the Hadera, the people who are settled. Can you explain how these two types are key to the understanding of Arab history? Yeah, um, it, basically, you... I think you've really got to go back to the landscape and you have to look at the Arabian Peninsula or what, what I like to call the Arabian subcontinent. Um, it's actually quite similar in 
in size to the Indian subcontinent and to kind of continental Western Europe. So you can compare it to those two places, but it's very different in many other respects. Um, and of course, a lot of it is uh, not exactly, uh, not, not actually not very much is sandy desert, you know, the, the kind of Lawrence of Arabia going over the dunes business. Um, not much is like that, but a lot of it is step and, and very sort of um, what you could call sort of parsimonious step. It, it you know, it, it produces herbage um, when the rain falls, but not very much, not for very long. Um, and, and then you get the corner, the bottom left corner, Yemen, which is very mountainous and it also has a lot of pockets of greenery because a lot of waterfalls there uh, and down into Oman. And it sort of gets the edge of the monsoon system that, that, um, that goes around the Indian Ocean. So you have to look at really the big picture to, to get all of this. Um, but what happens in Yemen is that the water tends to fall and then it will run off into the desert and be lost. So historically, and we're going back probably to at least 2000 BC, um, you're getting people who try to begin to control the water and they're building dams, not always storage dams, but diversion dams, and another sort of hydraulic engineering, large-scale large civil engineering. Um, and uh, of course, it reaches its culmination in, 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 in the Marib Dam. Uh, and, and the sluices of that are still there. I don't know if you went to see it. Um, but, uh, you know, this, 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 is a, this was a dam that was so famous that it's mentioned in the Quran. Um, and um, in order to set up all this control of water, you have to have a sort of settled populace um, that obeys rules and um, really cooperates in order to make the best of the water that there is and to stop it running away. So that, to me, is, is, is the basis of, of what I think of as Hadar, the, the settled peoples. And okay, contrast that with the other, the flip side of Arabia, which is those steppes. Um, and there you have basically tribal people who are, um, again, you know, same sort of time, a few thousand years BC, they're beginning to domesticate the camel. Certainly by a thousand BC, they domesticated it for, for, for uh, transport and riding, things like that. Um, and they are actually competing for the, 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 the greenery that grows. They're, they're essentially, as you said, transhuman um, pastoralists, but they're always competing. And so, you know, one lot will have no herds uh, of whatever they're, they're keeping, camels or sheep or goats or whatever, um, while in another place which has been lucky to get water and uh, rain and a bit of greenery, they will have a lot. So there's, there's a competition. And rather than cooperation, you get raiding. I haven't got enough herds. You've got more herds than me. Therefore, I will take yours. And it, it kind of, it, you know, it, I suppose it's wrong because it's theft, but it makes economic sense. It's, it's redistribution of, of resources. 
So you've got really those two lots of people, um, the settled people who are cooperating to control irrigation and the uh, much more mobile herders who are raiding each other. And, and, and that for me is, is kind of the basis of history. Um, of, of, of the Arab world. If you catapult that to now, of course, landscape and resources matter less. Um, and you could choose be to become a wanderer if you were born in Dubai and then just head off into the desert if you're privileged, allowed for that. You quoted the Syrian writer Khalil al-Nuaymi, who, who said, those who condemn us not to travel condemn us to a slow death in a spacious grave. Do you think that some of us are just born travellers, no matter the birthplace, no matter the circumstance? I don't, I don't know, to be honest. Um, I seem to be travelling a lot now. Uh, am I a born traveller? I don't think I am. No, I think I'm, I'm a very, you know, like I said, I'm a sort of moss in the crevice. Um, I'm, I'm rather condemned to travelling, you know. The, is there a sort of flying Dutchman syndrome um, as well? Uh, certainly looking at Arab history, it's the sort of traveling narrative that has taken over. You know, the Bedouin nomadic, uh, you know, when we think of Arabs, we th uh, historically we think of them traipsing through the desert on camels and things. Um, but, but that's only part of it. They've always been settled people in the Arab world, um, and particularly down in Yemen, as I say. Uh, and, and I tend to think it's circumstance that, um, that drives us to one or the other. I mean, how can you put it? Yeah, it's very difficult to work out who the first Arabs were, but they were probably people who, for whatever reason, started off as settled farmers up at the Fertile Crescent um, and decided to adopt a life of... Um, of wandering and, and use all those resources, which although they're scant in the desert, are there to be had if you can move around. So, um, I, I, yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think you were born one or the other. Your book begins around 900 BC, the same number of years before Muhammad as we are now beyond. And, and in this period of pre-Islamic history, you credit the language, the Arabic language, is what makes Arabs Arabs. And there's a quote by the Tunisian former head of state, Munsif al-Mazuki, that's in your book. Our community, unlike all others, does not live in a land, it lives in a language. Is that consistent throughout history? I don't think anything is consistent in any history. Um, what, what you have to do as a historian is look at the various people who have been called Arabs over time uh, and try and make sense of what actually holds them together. And different things hold them together at different times. Um, I mean, the, traditionally speaking, um, uh, I've talked about um, wandering tribes and they tended to base themselves uh, not on place but on genealogy. So, you know, I am so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And you get very, very, very ancient graffiti in the desert where people are writing their ge genealogy, sometimes back 15, 16 generations. Um, and it, this 
in time turned into one of the sort of markers of what being Arab was. Um, you know, as so often the reality is, is, is a lot more complex. Um, I, I, I think one of the safest things to hitch onto is language, yes. Um, and it, it, it has been the marker of being Arab more often than not over the 3,000 odd years that we're talking about. Um, and uh, yeah, lot, you're, you're right when you say before Islam, quite some time before, you know, several hundred years before Islam, Arabic seemed to be kind of reaching a level where you had a, a sort of unified language, mainly because people were traveling backwards and forwards um, and the travel necessitated having a, a um, uh, something you could speak to different people in, di in different places. So a sort of like a unified language grew up. Um, and also uh, there was a special form of the language, it seems, that was used by poets and, and seers and, and sort of medicine men and shamans and whatever you want to call them. Um, a, a sort of very high level language, which is essentially what we still have in poetry and in the Quran and so on. And all of that kind of held people together. And, and quite some time before Islam, a few hundred years, Arab kings were promoting poets. Um, and, you know, they were competing with each other to write the best odes to these kings and get paid lots of money. And all of that kind of cemented Arabic culture together. Uh, and then, of course, Islam comes along and you get the first Arabic book, which is the Quran. Um, and, that, and that really provides a sort of linchpin or a kingpin for, for, for the future of Arabic culture. Yes, but there's, there's the language that the book is written in, but of course there's also the belief that, um, that goes along with the content of, the, of what's in the book. So then does that take over in part as the binding factor? To a certain extent. I mean, uh, you know, obviously not all Arabs are Muslims, um, and not all Muslims are Arabs, uh, very, very obviously. Um, so, you know, you can't equate the two, but the uh, but Islam is obviously the major uh, single event in, in, in Arab history. Um, and, you know, Muhammad was the Arab prophet. Um, and uh, it, very neatly, for a historian, it comes bang in the middle, uh, as, as you said, of, of known Arab, Arab history. So, you know, we're going back to the ninth century and the first inscription, um, you know, left by an Assyrian king that mentions an Arab. Uh, and if you, if you divide the time from then, ninth century BC to now, Muhammad comes bang in the middle. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 to some extent it takes over and if you look at surveys these days um about you know what how do people identify themselves maybe 30 years ago they were thinking oh i'm arab first but now it's swung a bit more towards being muslim first so you know it's, everything is a pendulum in history um but the sort of midpoint of the swing um, is is definitely Islam. Um, that said, Islam very obviously 
was um, draws on a lot that came before. And, and, and you know, the kind of Judeo-Christian echoes in Islam of obvious, um, the, the earlier prophets are shared and so on. Um, you know, Moses and Jesus, the, the Adam, they're regarded as prophets in Islam, as you know. Um, but there's also, a, and this is something that I've tried to bring out in, in my Arab history, that um, there, there was a long history in the Arabian Peninsula of forming a sort of unified whole through allegiance to a single deity. And you find that in Yemen. I mean, I know I harp on about Yemen quite a lot because I've lived there a lot, but um, it has, I feel, been sidelined. So you get, even in the days of Saba, Sheba, the kingdom of Sheba, um, if you wanted to join the sort of confederation that was Sheba, and it was a bit like the sort of, um, it was a bit like a commonwealth, you know, a bit like the commonwealth these days. So, so you, you could sort of latch onto it. And in order to do that, you had to go on pilgrimage to um, the shrine in Marib, where the great dam was, of, of the, the sort of arch god of Sheba, al makkah Now, of course, the big difference with Islam is that um, Al-Makkah coexisted with other deities, and, and in Islam you've only got Allah. Um, and, you know, he's, 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 it's not as if he's the chief god of a bunch, no, he is the only one, and um, completely sort of stripped of all attributes. So that, that's the, if you like, the, one of the revolutionary aspects of Islam. But the idea of a community centering around allegiance to a single deity and going on pilgrimage is, is actually very, very old mm. in, in the Arabian Peninsula. And you, you even had similar things in, in, in the north among the, 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 Bedou, the Bedouins that um, we don't know so much about. You do, you describe them as the peripheral, mobile, numerically insignificant people, people without a capital letter, let alone a capital city. And I, I wonder, Tim, who cares about the capitals in a way? Who cares about the coming together? Do we are we over idealizing unification? That is a tremendously good question. Um, I don't think we over idealize unification. It's not. It's not the question of that. I mean, I I would say unity and getting along together is better than the opposite. And I say this very very clearly at the beginning of my history that, you know, look at the history of Europe. For God's sake, um, I mean, basically there were hundreds and hundreds of years of wars, and then the very worst wars of all, the world wars of the twentieth century. And after that, we've had the um, the gradual formation of the European Union. And unions, I think, probably are better by and large, in the long run for people. But as a historian, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at, you can only look at groups. And a group for a group to have an identity, it, it's, it's, it's partly got to have a sort of capital letter. And, you know, you can idealise this. You can say, oh, you know, all Arabs are descended from one person and they were Arabs, they're one family and they've always had a capital A. Um, I don't think this is right. They have had a capital A. Um, they certainly gained one with, with Islam. They gained one before Islam with the growth of Arabic linguistic culture. But, you know, several hundred years after Islam, 
Arabs kind of reverted to being, as you quoted me, those peripheral people who more often than not raided you, and they were a problem. And then we get into the 19th century and you have this great revival of what being Arab is, um, which goes through into the 20th century, culminates in someone like, like um, Jamal Abdel Nasser, uh, who, who, who is, I think, probably the second most important person in Arab history, because he renewed this identity and people coalesced around him. Uh, and they got this capital letter, we are Arabs again, um, uh, very, very much in, in, in his time. At the moment, things are in a transitional period, and identity is it's a bit more fluid, the, the kind of interplay between being Arab, being Muslim, being uh, a member of a, uh, being a citizen or uh, subject, perhaps I should say, of a, of a, of a nation state. Um, and all of these things are rather in a fluid state. And, and maybe it's that cycle is inevitable in the sense yeah. that, you know, you, you, you get capitalization, whether it's the letter or the city. And then, you know, you're settled and you establish a political society, which gives you stability, but then it gives you stagnation too. So you fragment, become mobile, vibrant, vital and then aspire to maybe found a capital and is that just how the world yeah. goes round yeah it, it, it is how the world goes round and it was all put so beautifully by Ibn Khaldun back in the 14th century he, he was probably he's one of the greatest historical theorists and, and uh, you know he talks very much about this cycle of, of kind of new blood coming out of the Bedouin step lands and, and they come over and they take over and they found a dynasty and then it lasts for he says usually for three generations it runs to seed and um, gets stuck in luxury uh, and they omit to pay the army properly and everything falls apart and then another lot come over and come in and take over and you know essentially this is what this is what has been happening um all throughout history, Ibn Khaldun is still right. And okay, we might not have Bedouins forming new dynasties in the sense of people turning up on camels with lances, but, but that kind of raiding mentality is still, is still what, 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 what makes things turn around. Um, I mean, I think actually rather sadly, because at the moment uh, a lot of people are suffering you look at the grammar of that too, I noticed, and how Arabs are active when they're on the move and then when they're settled, the languages that they're passive, even unknown. I know it's, it's the language that seduced you, Tim, as you put it. You call it the rich, strange, subtle, suavely hypnotic, magically persuasive, maddeningly difficult high Arabic language that evolved on the tongues of tribal soothsayers and poets. What is it for you? Is it the sound? Is it the history? The arcaneness? It's a good question to ask me at the moment. Um, what I'm working on, I just mentioned Ibn Khaldun. Um, I'm actually working on a, an edition and translation of his uh, autobiography. And it is the most fascinating book. I mean, 
he he gets into all these scrapes. Um, he was a kind of literary guy, but he 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 served sultans and and, and uh, you know served as as sort of uh, ministerial level and. Uh, and taught in various capitals across North Africa, ended up in Egypt. He met Tamerlane, um, uh, the, um, the great sort of Mongol um, raider, and left a wonderful description of him. But um, I, yeah, I'm working on his autobiography, and it, it occasionally drives me mad because he he. He had a very good friend called Ibn al-Khatib, who was the, effectively the prime minister of Granada, uh, and who, um, oh, who is one of the major characters in my novel, Bloodstone. Um, but Ibn al-Khatib wrote this incredible form of Arabic. Um, he, he loved writing in rhyming prose. Um, which we don't really have in, in, in English. So it rhymes like poetry, but it hasn't got rhythm. Um, but Ibn al-Khatib took it to huge extremes. And when he writes simply, you think, oh, this guy's brilliant. You know, he's like Samuel Johnson. There's such wisdom and there's such beauty, um, classical poise in what he writes. But occasionally he loses himself and he, he admits this. And it becomes beautiful sound. Um, I, I came across a, a phrase in the, it must have been in the, in the London Review of Books the other day, um, an old copy, and it, 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 it was sonorous tripe. And, it, and he occasionally kind of falls into this sonorous tripe. <laughs> and you listen to it, you read it out. I read it out to the, to the kids. Um, who were native Arabic speakers, and um, and they kind of go, oh, that's amazing, that sounds really good. And then you say, what does it mean? Um, and, of course, as a translator, you have to tease meaning out of it. There is meaning there, but sometimes it's damned obscure. Um, but the beauty of it is just um, mesmerizing. And I'm psyching myself up to write another history, but whereas the first one, it covered um, a sort of swathe of the globe from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean uh, and the Arab world in 3,000 years, um, this one will cover, actually, it will cover more time, kind of from the beginning of creation, just about, um, to uh, the present time. Um, but it's, it's centred on a very, very small place, uh, Gibraltar. So yeah, I'm going to be looking at the history of Gibraltar. Interesting. Um, Another quote. Your book is full of them. I've plucked out to um, present to you again. One is the poet Nizar Kabani, who says, "I'm exhausted by my Arabness. Oh. Is Arabness a curse, a punishment?" And in that sense, I, does Arabness ask too much of its people to be too many things at once? I think it certainly did when Nizar Kabani wrote that, which was sort of in the aftermath of, I think it was in the aftermath of the, um, the war of 1967 with the Israelis. And, you know, if you like the dashing of the hopes and dreams um, uh, that, that um, 
Jamal Abdel Nasser, you know, Nasser as we call them in, in the West, Faris uh, al-Ahlam, the, the light of dreams, the, the cavalier of dreams um, that he had come up with. So, you know, he, he Arab nationalism and Nasserism, they, they worked up this wonderful ferment of how wonderful it was to be Arab. Um, and then, you know, hopes were dashed particularly in, in, in that war. Uh, and, you know, people were sort of left somewhat with this rather like having an albatross of Arabness around their necks, which, which they haven't really... You don't want to free yourself of it because it's part of your identity, but it is, it's the responsibility. Uh, and... I mean, I think Nizar Kabani is absolutely brilliant. He's famous for his love poetry. It is, oh, his love poetry is gorgeous, but he was also, as a political poet and commentator, he, he was, I think, without match. And, um, yeah. And I think um, whatever he said, or something like that, it was, um, I can't remember the original exactly, but it, it really was... Um, you read it and you kind of sigh with, sigh and sympathy with him. Yeah, I mean, I sighed when in your translation, but... Um, so th <laughs> if I can just, you know, bring up another another image of his that I have somewhere near the end of, of my book, um, where, you know, where, where people are stuck in the station of time and the clock's broken and they're waiting for Saladin and they're waiting for the sword of Saladin to come and save them and it never comes and they're waiting like sheep in the station of time and the clock is broken. I think the last few decades have not been such happy ones in the Arab world. I, I call it the age of disappointment. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit sobering, that subtitle. But the Arabs might have lost their empire, Tim, but their language and culture wins in many ways. And, you know, to quote another old saying of yours, God gives grace to those who move from place to place. Exile's yeah. pain can lead to gain. And, and I, maybe the problem also rests with us that we're so guilty of discriminating against the nomad today. Perhaps we always have been. Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment... Well, I mean, look what's happening in Britain. They're threatening to send people to Rwanda, for God's sake, um, uh, you know, just because they're trying to find a better life. I mean, obviously, yes, I know you can't have anarchy. You can't have the whole world descending on London. Um, you know, it just would, it would sink under the numbers. But I think you have to have a respect for the travel and for people who are, you know, trying to find the best for themselves in a, in a very harsh world. Um, and how do you strike that balance? I, 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 no, I don't know. Um, but I think certainly we should have a respect for travel. And that phrase that you quoted in Arabic, it's beautiful, Phil Haraka Beraka. Um, uh, yeah, um, in mo in literally in motion, there is blessing. How do you think Arabs would define freedom today? The, the definition of that word can be interpreted in so many ways, depending on where you're locked in, let's say. 
Yeah, I think it's the freedom that we all want, the freedom to be ourselves. I, I do think travel is an important freedom in the Arab world. Uh, it certainly is in the Islamic world. And I think I probably said in, in, in my Arabs book, uh, I said you know, that Christians break bread together, uh, but uh, Muslims travel together on pilgrimage. Um, so it is kind of like a sacred, uh, a sacred act, mm. traveling, taking to the road. If you are Ibn Sabil, um, a son of the road, you, you are in almost a state of, of grace. And you're one of uh, a number of groups of people who are uh, allowed to receive um, arms. Um, uh, it, it, travel is a very special thing in, in Arab history. And I think it's probably more so than in, um, in other people's histories, yes. It does feel, Arabs feels like you wrote this book during the making of history in a, as you put it, I think in a land, you wrote it in a land living rather than in a library. And, and as, as an example of one of the anecdotes that you use, it's, there's an Arab, Arabic dialect you identify in present day Uzbekistan and also in a region near Lake Chad, both of which orig originate in this small area of Eastern Arabia, which, um, is a reflection of seventh century migrations. Is that the kind of revelation that just you know, fires you up being on the road and witnessing yourself rather than kind of leafing through other people's books? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I find, I mean, well, perhaps I'm, I might be a bit sort of sad and geeky, but, uh, but I, I absolutely love things like that. I love the fact that I go to Morocco I swan around Casablanca, Tangier, and so on, and don't really uh, and really have to strain to pick up much of the dialect. And then I go to Mauritania, and end up in the middle of nowhere. And some guy starts talking to me, and I go, "Oh, we're next to Morocco, but I can understand him. How is this?" And the reason is that he's a Hassani, and that his ancestors were tribal Arabs who migrated quite late from the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula where I have lived for so long and they've kind of retained that way of speaking so you know that's that's something where their ancestors probably left Arabia I don't know five six seven hundred years ago I can't I can't quite think with the Hassanis but but the echo of the speech um, goes across all those centuries, and it makes me suddenly feel at home. And that's what Munsef Marzuki was saying when, when he said, we don't live in a land, we live in a language. Yes. It's, it's a much shorter span, the time that you yourself spent in Sanaa, still almost four decades. And I wanted to ask how life for you there and, and for Yemenis too, how that's changed over the last 36 years. Oh God, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's changed absolutely immeasurably. And I think of it in terms of, uh, it, it's kind of neatest to think of in terms of, in terms of my first book and my most recent of my own books, which is Arabs. And really it comes across as a sort of jolly, 
travel book and you know a youngish guy poncing around the mountains of Yemen <laughs> you know and having a good time and and it is very much that but it, it also reflects a lot on history and it's also actually deeply political between the lines because I wrote it in the years following the unification or reunification of Yemen in 1990. Um, the Yemenis beat the Germans, by the way, just by a few months, I think. I started off living in the old North Yemen, and the old South Yemen was uh, a sort of completely unvisitable land. It was exotic. It was. It might have been the Kamchatka Peninsula, even though it was next door. Um, and you know, th this, it was absolutely the case that if a North Yemeni went to South Yemen and the South Yemeni was caught speaking to them, the South Yemeni would be put in jail by his authorities. But it was almost impossible to go there. Uh, and certainly as a, as a foreigner, um, you couldn't go there. Or you know, just once in a blue moon. Uh, I remember an old friend of mine made it to Hadramaut and went to Shabam and she came back sort of quivering with um, excitement. Oh, <laughs> there's not a single concrete block in the whole of Wadi Hadramaut. It's all made of mud, um, just like Freya Stark saw it and, and all the old travellers. Um, and then in 1990, the two parts unified and I could go and see all of this stuff. Hadramaut, Adam, Aden, you know, all the sort of weird British post-colonial stuff that had been ruled by, by the socialists um, for 25 years or whatever um, and become very strange. You know, I could go to Socotra, this dreamlike island uh, off the Horn of Africa, but, you know, with its Yemeni culture, its ancient Yemeni culture, um, and, and these weird dragon's blood trees sprouting up everywhere and, um, you know, strange um, civet cats sort of leaping around. Um, <laughs> and all of this was suddenly opened. And I realised, yes, it was exotic, it was different, but the culture that holds it together, the feel of it is, is all Yemeni. So unification seemed a, a right and proper and natural thing. Um, I mean, I think very sadly, politically, it wasn't handled at all well. And, um, you know, things fell apart quite early on. Relations were never of the best. Uh, and recent, more recent Yemeni history has made the whole thing fall apart again. So, you know, God forbid that we're going to return to the situation before 1990 with the North Yemen and the South Yemen, but it is a real and present danger at the moment. Mm. Um, so, and I could see this happening when I was writing my history of, of Arabs. Uh, and in fact, the dedication, I don't know if you remember that, it's, it's in memory of a unified Yemen. To have seen it come together and celebrate that unification and to see it possibly falling apart and in such mortal danger now, it's, it's utterly heartbreaking. And obviously, if you're a Yemeni and you live there, and you 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 have to you have to ride the storms, um, you know. Allahumma uh, asabri, God is with those who are patient, but you know, 
patience of Yemenis does seem to be heroic and um, most infinite at the moment. And indeed, other people's, Syrians, Iraqis. Can the past be a homeland? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's not another country. It's, it's absolutely where we feel at home. Even something like WhatsApp profile pictures to drop something completely out of the blue. You know, I'm noticing that a lot of Yemeni friends are using black and white photographs of themselves as they were back in the 1980s and 90s, which is, you know, it's lovely. Um, you know, some of my non-Yemeni friends do that as well, but um, it seems to be maybe part of a harking back to, um, to happier times. And for you, Tim, will, will, is Yemen home? I don't know when you were last there or when you're going back, but is that where you feel you belong? Um, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know when I will go back at, uh, at, at the moment. Um, I fully intend to. I mean, I've got my little tower house and my library there with and the alabaster windows and, you know, the rest of my sort of adoptive family. Well, uh, I mean, it's they who adopted me. So, um, you know, and I miss them terribly. But uh, I think I've said that a couple of them are here with me. In, um, in Malaysia studying. So we're kind of like a little, we think of ourselves as a little island of Yemen in Southeast Asia. And um, it's, it's very, very comforting to be here with them. We miss Sanaa terribly. Uh, it's, it's a very, very special place. I hope you get back soon, Tim, thank for you. your sake, for Yemen's sake. Tim McIntosh-Smith, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to the supporter of this podcast, Abercrombie & Kent. Goodbye.